on the surfer, you understand that, you know, you, you don't control the waves. You just need to have the right board and be in the right place to enjoy the ride, but you don't control the waves, you know? And I see that as a bit of a metaphor of life, you know? You do things that put you in the right place with the right tools, but you don't control the circumstances, you adapt to them. Today, we're talking to Francisco Blaha, an ex-fisherman scientist turned independent fisheries advisor. Francisco's work has now taken him to over 55 countries, including to work with numerous United Nations bodies, independent governments, and international development and conservation organizations. Most recently, he's been working closely with Pacific Island nations on questions of sustainable fishing, and problems associated with illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing, which we can refer to as IUU fishing throughout the course of the conversation. Outside of work, Francisco has also a pretty eclectic mix of hobbies, ranging from long distance swimming and a bunch of other water sports to the occasional DJing of a gig on the side. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Francisco, thank you for joining us. No, it's great to see you again, uh, and thank you for the invitation. This is great. No, thank you for being with us. Um, for for those listening, we Francisco and I actually met earlier this year, uh, at the Rhodes Academy of Oceans Law and Policy, where we spent nearly a month in Rhodes in Greece, learning about issues of oceans law and policy, and that's how we came to know each other. Francisco, I don't know if you remember, but actually on the very first night of the Academy, we sat together at dinner time and you said to me that if you could go back and talk to a younger version of yourself and you said to him where you were now and what you were doing, there's just no way that he would believe you. And I thought that was actually a great place for us to kind of kick off the conversation, actually, in that. I'm hoping you can take us back to childhood Francisco and talk us through how you've come to be where you are now. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, road <laughs> that still surprised me. Uh, now, what I would say is that if I, you know, if somebody would have told me on my 20s where I would be, where I would be living and what I would be doing now, I would have said, I don't know what you're on, but be careful, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> really powerful stuff, you know. So, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Grew up in the border in between Argentina and Paraguay. My dad is an Austrian sort of agronomist, anthropologist, and my mom is part Russian, part German, part Guarani, which is the people who used to live in that part of the world before colon uh, the colonial conquest. Um, very early on, uh, sort of a, my dad being a sort of a hippie uh, socialist in a country where that wasn't a very welcome, <laughs> a very welcome job. Uh, we had to leave the country a few times. We got a right, we went to Europe, uh, sort of, and my dad had to go to Europe to basically not being uh, taken uh, or killed or something like that. So we actually went by boat. And I think that early early presence of the ocean in my head as a kid that went from you know living with no electricity to be in a boat and then living in germany mm. i was quite uh quite mind-blowing and then i always had this you know this fascination with the water i guess since then and then um we came back and then another military government came in and so on so i had to i grew up in a very remote area and uh 
to have schooling either you had to basically you went to boarding school and boarding school was okay but basically free until primary but then for high school that wasn't an option so you had the option so either having money or at the time you could join the armed forces as a cadet being keen on the ocean i actually joined the navy as a cadet mm. when i was 12. yeah i'm actually a big bloke as you as, as you know so i was actually <laughs> quite good in swimming and rowing and uh, then uh, yes we had the, um, the unfortunate uh, war with uh, the uk through them to the falkland islands and uh, i was uh, put on search and rescue and uh, so after uh, the war ended and uh, then the military government collapsed the following year partly mm. because what happened with the war how old would you have been at this point to francisco 16 16, 16 okay. to 17. so after that i was in the you know <laughs> there is a there is a literature literature uh, so in literature you have a style called magic realism that comes from latin america Mm. And it's based on reality, you know, because at the time I was an underage veteran, you mm. know, which is it's totally ridiculous concept. So uh, anyway, so of the Navy, uh, you finish with a high school degree and with the um, sort of like a, a lower rank officer's uh, position. And uh, I realized very soon that I had a, I will have forever a big mistrust of uh, institutions and a lifelong love for the sea so where can you have no institutions mm. and sea fishing just to unpack that a little bit yeah. francisco sorry uh -huh. to jump yeah. in but when you say a distrust of institutions was that from yeah. your time in the armed forces or yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah. and just the the experience of that especially at such a young age yeah you know institutions are needed you know so i realized Kind of early that I'm actually okay working with people, but perhaps not always good working for people. Mm. So that was a, an early lesson from there, and that you know, it's, uh, yeah, you lead by example in many cases, you know. And uh, we were a lot of us were just left to our own devices during that experience. So you know, it wasn't a good experience to have as a you know as a as a 16 year old, that's for sure. Anyway, uh, long story short. Um, during my time in the navy i also by some reason uh, uh, this magazine this uh, national geographic uh, from 1976 came into my hands that described the first trip of the hokulea that was a hawaiian double ended can double hull canoe that went from hawaii to tahiti uh, doing traditional navigation so not using any of the things that we normally use which is sextants or gps or anything like that mm, so they were way fun and i i don't know i just got by some obscure reason, hold of the magazine and with my very primitive English at the time, I was like going, uh, I just read it and then it was no internet. So I had to find all these names of all these islands, go to the library, go to the book. And, you know, I always had that magazine with me. And uh, so anyway, long story short, I worked uh, and study and uh, worked for the National Fishery Institute in Argentina. And then, uh, but I was working as a fisherman because of course in science there is no money. And I was doing all sorts of jobs working mm. as a lifeguard, fixing surfboards, you know, name it. And then after my, after I finished my, my master's, or we call it in Spanish licenciatura, I realized that I had nothing and I had nothing to lose anymore or to, to gain. So basically I say, okay, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to go to the Pacific, which has always been that fascination I had. 
Mm. At that point in time, you had a university degree and work experience too, right? So what, at that point in time, had you feeling like that there was nothing to lose to set to see? It is a crucial time. You put a lot of effort towards, you know, achieving something. And in my case, uh, perhaps I also should have not, uh, noticed that I'm, a, I'm quite dyslexic. So at the time, that wasn't much of a thing. So if you don't know how to write, you're dumb. And I knew I wasn't dumb because, you know, I really, you know, I, I, I enjoy learning. And, you know, I had very good marks in, at, uh, in school and at uni in most things that didn't require writing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but for example, yeah, I loved history and philosophy from high school. And then, uh, and during biology, you know, studying biology, science was just something I just enjoy. I enjoy the process of learning. But point was that, okay, you, you put a lot of effort into achieving something. You put a lot of effort into, you know, being or trying to be the, you know, the best you can in many aspects. And then suddenly he has your degree. And, uh, you know, and it was actually controversial because I was looking after an event that uh, wasn't of the liking of the government at the time. Very different to study in places with, uh, where, you know, politic turmoil is the constant, you know, because everything becomes politics. And yeah. fishing, you know, fishing is politics in many cases. So basically, it came to a point where I, I looked around me and I thought, I thought, well, this is not what I really want. I don't know what I want, but I know I don't want this. Mm. And uh, I didn't have much. So everything I had pretty much fit, fitted, you know, in a, in a big backpack or in a small box. So, you know, I didn't have properties. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids, you know. So instead of seeing this as a, as a kind of a half glass, food type of gun instead of seeing it as a as a problem I saw it as an opportunity and you know I really wanted to go to the Pacific you know I was on my I was 25 I had a degree I knew how to do a job I had experience I I don't know perhaps growing up without many uh, many things you gain a lot of trust from being employable and not from being employed if that mm. makes sense yes so you know, you I know I will survive. I had that in me because I did it so far. So I thought, well, there was a chance to. I lived in a place called Mar del Plata at the time, where we had a lot of. Uh, it's the last big port so for, for sailing boats that want to go around the Cape Horn or come around the Cape Horn from the Pacific or want to go from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So I just basically met this German. Uh, guys on a sailing boat and they were, are we going that way? You want to, you, you, you know, you want to come for free and work your way in. So that I did that. So I finished in Tahiti. Um, and then I met these other guys who were fishing and having a problem that I knew how to fix. So I jumped on the day boat and then I stopped sailing and I started, went back to fishing. And then I fished my way from, uh, the, from Tahiti into the Cooks, from the Cooks Islands to Fiji, from Fiji to Samoa, from Samoa to Tonga, and they're working with different people and you're just doing all sorts of uh, irresponsible things. And then uh, at some stage, I got the opportunity to bring a boat to New Zealand because we needed to have some repairs and some, um, so I had to do surveys, et cetera. And then I came to New Zealand and somehow it's just a, two things felt comfortable. And uh, I actually went to a very good party. And uh, <laughs> I thought, I'm going to stay here. 
And yeah, I did that. So basically, I stayed in New Zealand and uh, started working for a fishing company because I needed, you know, to go through the immigration process, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, then, you know, I met in that party a lot of people. So I started uh, playing music at the at the local student radio, blah blah. And then uh, after two years, when after I got my um, my residency, I found out that I had a set of skills that people could use in New Zealand as well. So I was working a lot on compliance issues and uh and r d and while big companies have that capacity to do that small companies don't so i started instead of working for one big company i started working for a, a lot of small companies hmm. uh offering sort of r d and d services and compliance analysis helping them so i always find that you know in between sort of at least in the in the fishery space uh there is a there is what happens at sea and there is what happens in land. So there's a failure by the regulators to do, do not understand what they're trying to regulate. And there is a failure by the industry not to understand where the regulators come from. And uh, I always been by, because I was the educated guy on the fishing vessels and then in other places and, and then in the factories I was, or in the regulatory uh, environments, I was the guy mm. who understood the fishing boats I just found this crevice mm. in between both realities. And I since yeah, since then I've been working on that. And you know, mm. that went into fisheries compliance, into the seafood safety side, into market access requirements, and lately into the labor, the labor side of fishing. So yeah, I found this niche which I didn't know existed until I found it. Mm. And then from there, the opportunity to start working for international organizations came up, like the UN, like FIO, and others, where suddenly I actually was getting paid to travel and to talk <laughs> to people. I thought, this is just wonderful. But, you know, I had no idea that job existed when I started my, this road. So I basically try to make the best of any situation you know that's been uh, you know I, like I always say I uh, you know now I'm in a privileged position I have a family I have a house I live in a you know in a, in a wealthy country but you know 79% of the world population lives below $10 a day yeah yeah so this was me before I actually you know came to New Zealand you know 45% of the world population lives below $2 a day. And that's where my mom come from. So I always keep in mind that, you know, whatever we decide, we think is, you know, sustainable or ethical or um, name or whatever other objectives you want to put to it is actually the view of, you know, what, 21% of the world population, mm. you know, the ones that can afford to have a future, you know, it's sort of a, not having much is somehow sometimes liberating because you don't have much to lose. So you actually give yourself the freedom to to try things because what is the other alternative? Mm. So I'm way more conservative now than I was one of my 20s, you know, <laughs> because I have more to lose. <laughs> Roots are deeper, yeah. You know, and, uh, and as well, you know, being a, a dumb fisherman, I never had the... Or you know, or having that self perception, or having others having that self perception of me, 
you know, I never was afraid to fail because that was what I suspected. You know, I think that, you know, I see it from uh, members of my family that have, you know, um, you know, my extended family now that had this, you know, very, very uh, early ascensions that they were bright and they were, uh, you know, they had scholarship, they did this, they did that. And the, f the, f the fear of failure can be mobilizing, you know, that, but it's all people have these expectations, you know, and, you know, I had no, I think that nobody has the expectation. <laughs> My uncle, you know, is, it's, you know, it's not, it's not funny, of course, because he's going through uh, Alzheimer's and a bit of earlier dementia, but that made him very sincere. And the last time I saw him, it was like, look at you, we wouldn't have given, a, you know, we wouldn't have given a gram of hope for you. And look at you now. You know? <laughs> and it was like, man, that's, that's actually confronting, but very nice. You know? <laughs> So, you know, so oh, there was funny. actually no expectations, you know, or, yeah. or there were actually, there was expectation of failure. So when you start, I don't know, mm. if you start from a position of, you know, hey, what is the worst thing that can happen that you actually are in the same place you're now? So when you start from that set of expectations, everything can. Mm. Mm. I think this is really this is really interesting. It's something that I've been thinking about is the, the double-edged sword, I suppose, of expectation in that high expectations can make you feel like you can't move. But also, I think sometimes on the flip side, when, when you feel like the expectation is to fail, that sometimes that can, that can keep you in the same place as well. So I'm really interested in how for you, that that flip side was liberating. I remember talking to my son and I say that, you know, pretty much the same words than you, that expectations are a knife with two edges. Mm. If you don't have them, you don't move. And if you have too many, you risk feeling a failure. That is a very delicate, delicate equilibrium in between both, you know? I think that you need to have expectations in order to move. Otherwise, you just stay. You know, there is no incentive to go anywhere or to do anything. Mm. But then if you have too many, then it can immobilize you. You know, let's talk, let's, for example, you know, I knew about the, the Rhodes Academy for a long time, but yet I never thought I would be, you know, eligible because I don't have a background in law. But as many other things I've done in my life, I just give it a go. I had the no already. Yeah. You know, if I didn't do anything, I will not go. But then I give it a go and I actually got, you know, very, I got, what to my own surprise sometimes, I get the support of, of really, really important people, people you admire. Mm. They go, oh yeah, man, you should do this. You know, you, you have something to offer them, you know, that brings an original perspective into this. And yeah, so, you know, if I didn't have the expectations that I would be able to do it, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have applied. And if I wasn't elected, oh, well, of course, you know, I'm not a lawyer. So it would have been, you know, <laughs> I would be okay either way. So when I was told that I was, you know, and this is just one example of many things that have happened to my life, you know? Yeah. You might as well throw the hat in the ring. See what happens. Yeah. You know, do your best, mate, you know? 
hope for the best, be prepared for the worst. Yeah, that's also a great example of how other people can have a huge influence, right, on important sliding doors moments. We can use the Rhodes Academy as um, maybe a, a proxy for other life choices as well in that sometimes it's other people that can tip you either or either way, right? So I could you talk a little bit more about people? Absolutely. And I think it's uh, I, uh, when I was talking a bit about before about not having expectations and whatever, you know, I wouldn't have done anything that I done if it wasn't for people who actually, you know, supported you and just go, I need just give it a go, mate. Or, you know, basically as an immigrant, you know, I'm pretty, pretty much a professional immigrant, you know, and uh, <laughs> I keep moving from countries. So I live in New Zealand, but my job is to go to countries and, you know, start from scratch there and help and work yeah. and, you know, become part. And my book of rules of life is very, very small. It has pretty much only two. It says, one, never be ungrateful, and two, don't believe that you are too much, you know, don't don't be sort of, a, you know, be a thing that you are, you know, you are the man, you know, that's not, mm. uh, that's never the case. So, you know, the whole idea that's, you know, the self-made men and stuff like that, yeah, yeah, nah. It is true, you have to, you know, like, yes, Australian, I'm, I'm a surfer, you understand that, you know, you, you don't control the waves, you just, need to have the right board and be in the right place to enjoy mm. the ride but you don't control the waves you know and i see that as a bit of a metaphor of life you know you do things that put you in the right place with the right tools but you don't control the circumstances you adapt to them or you find them mm. so you know pretentiousness and ingratitude are never going to take you anywhere that's my little book of life you know so mm. i humility that yeah the, you know you are whatever you do is because you know some other people allow you to do it you know or, or, or invite you you know like you know i'm an ex-fisherman and i work now in fisheries compliance and i get invited to you know meetings of fisheries inspectors you know i've been addressing you know a room full of 100 fisheries inspectors you know when i was a fisherman that would give me a heart attack, you know, being in front of a room of fisheries <laughs> inspectors, you know. And now I'm invited to talk about them of what I do. And then actually what I have to say is welcome. You know, that is just for me, you know, totally humbling. Now, the only way I could be in that room is because somebody gave me an opportunity. Yeah, yes. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's easy to forget that too, I think. Um, especially the deeper into that room you are, the easier it is to forget how you got there, I think, sometimes. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I wonder, do you have any, in your day-to-day -day life, I'm guessing that I know the answer to some of, some of the answers to this question, <laughs> but some of the things that you do to, to help you cultivate that sense of humility and to remind you to be grateful in those moments? Because sometimes I think it's easy to say in the abstract that this is really, really important. Yeah. But then when push comes to shove, when you're in the room, you find yeah. yourself feeling differently. So do you have any tips for things that you do on a day-to-day -day <laughs> basis on yeah. that front? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, I'm a long distance swimmer. That's uh, one of my, the things I do. So we're talking, you know, 10 kilometers in open ocean and stuff like that. So I do remember from, unfortunately, my experience on the war and, and then uh, later on that, 
you know, sometimes you're in the middle of the water and, you know, you look around and there is nothing. And that is always a way to feel humble, you know. Mm. So for, I, the, for me, the, the endless ocean give me that, that sensation of, you know, I'm lucky to be here. To have no limitations or borders, to be able to see nothing. And to be reminded of how small you are in the grand scheme yes. of things, I can imagine. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. So to be able to see nothing. And then, you know, just little things, you know, like don't believe the hype, you know, so it's just, just it, you know, it's it's not, in many cases, it's not real. The other thing that I always, from, you know, my early days, I was been a keen uh, reader of the Stoics, <laughs> you know, ah. the fisherman philosopher, you know. So, uh, <laughs> and, you know, the basic of Stoicism is around that, you know, you just, you know, make sure that you, that you're humble, make sure that, you know, you know that the fact that you're alive today is statistically pretty rare. <laughs> There's yeah. way more chances in the human life, in, in the history of civilization that you wouldn't be here than you are here. So, you know, be grateful, which is also the name of one of my favorite songs, Be Grateful. <laughs> well, you know. I wanted to ask you about next steps. I mean, we've unpacked the road to where you are now and some of the important turns along the way. And I'm curious as to what you see on the, the path ahead. Yeah, well, that is always an interesting one because sort of uh, the other thing that as I'm very aware is that I get bored easily. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I like do things and then suddenly it's like, okay, you know, all right, I thought about being here, I had this goal, and now I'm here. So why cannot I just not be happy and be here? Mm. And I go, oh, look, mm, what a, that is nice. What, I wonder what is behind that. And then I start looking at what is coming. So I think that also keeps your life interesting. You know, I think that the day you stop learning is the day you just stop. You know, there's mm. no need to keep going. So... I'm always doing trainings and courses and stuff like that because I have the time and I have the capacity or I don't have, sometimes I don't have the time, but I really want to do it. So the good thing about the this period of COVID was that I managed to do a lot of, uh, be able to do trainings in things that I was interested. And sometimes you do the training and then you go, okay, now I know about this. And perhaps it's not as interesting as I thought it was, but now I know because I know about the topic, you know. So, for example, I did the trainings on um, on uh, ocean acidification with the International Oceanographic Commission, and it was it's just really interesting, but requires a level of commitment and a level of support that I cannot manage by myself. So it was great to have it, and it's good to have it in the in my backpack of knowledge, but you know, it was not something I'm going to pursue. Uh, the issue of ocean governance was something that I've always been interested in because I always work from the inside of that. And uh, the issues of law of the sea, you know, I, I knew existed and, you know, I started with it. And um, as I say, during during uh, during the valedictory, you know, I, I had an affair with the law of the sea for 40 years and I think it's now a good time to formalize it, you know. <laughs> so this is an area that, you know, uh, I actually have a strong interest and I find it... Uh, fundamental for a lot of the other work I've done. So mm. uh, I have done a lot of work on compliance, or fisheries compliance in particular, 
and I have this idea that uh, with the systems that we use, we are based on the stick. So, you know, if I catch you, here's the law, it has its limitations. So I'm actually really interested in exploring issues around incentives for compliance. So the fact that you're doing the right thing and that makes you feel spiritually good is not the biggest driver for compliance. We need to think differently. We need to think about what are the incentives? Because in many cases in our society, the ones who are doing the right thing is at their own cost. Yeah, they're losing money. Mm. Yeah. So what is the incentive for us to have compliance on the exploitation of natural resources? Yeah. So yeah. Do we, why we don't elevate the good side instead of just penalizing the bad side? It should be carrots and sticks in my opinion. This is a whole conversation for a full on another day. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I, I totally agree with you, but it also sounds like in hearing this that it's very much what you were saying earlier as well about that to discover what you're interested in, you have to try and often it's more helpful to figure out what you're not interested in or what's not going to work in the process of figuring out exactly what you are interested in. Yeah, and uh, the other thing that I have sort of uh, interestingly drifted back into as a former fisherman, it's actually labor side, the labor side of fisheries, and then more and more uh, getting involved with this. And in fact, uh, last night, so you know, back to trainings, you know, I'm actually spent pretty much from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. because uh, I'm doing online training to become an ILO fisheries inspector mm. for labor elements, you know, so in the National Labor Organization. Uh, I'm doing this at my own cost and at my own time. But my position is that if I'm going to start working into it, into something, I really need to understand the basics. If I'm going to be doing, you know, if I'm going to, I actually published a couple of scientific papers on this and I'm working with different organizations. But I plan to say, what is the job of a labor inspector? I've never been a labor inspector. I know about fishing and I know the reality is there. So basically, I went and, you know, I'm doing the online training, so at least I can work with this, saying I'm a qualified labor inspector. Mm, and really understand the issues raised. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense, but I don't think many people would do the same thing, Francisco. Yeah, well, the thing is that, you know, I, I think it comes back to the conversation before where, you know, you need, so we think that it's okay to look to an issue from, you know, top down. Because, well, we are qualified in this, we are academics, we are this and we are that. Where, you know, I see that is a bit, that is as necessary as to be looking at it from the bottom up. Yes, absolutely. And I think it comes back to as well, intellectual humility on that front as well, of, of not just assuming that you know how things probably are. I worked with this, uh, this fisherman from the island of Madeira. Yeah. He is ninth generation tuna fisherman, ninth generation. And uh, he didn't, he wasn't very good at writing. So I did a lot of the paperwork for him, you know, when we go to ports, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he was like a really thick Portuguese accent and he will go, uh, he will look at the horizon, you know, we were in the fishing boat, he will look at the horizon and uh, he will go, tonight we play domino till late. Tomorrow, no fishing. And the next morning, there was no fishing. And uh, <laughs> then we're looking at things and go, tonight, we go to bed early because tomorrow, a lot of fishing. And the next day, it was 
ridiculous amount of fishing. And I was like, Pedro, how you know how you do this? You know, honestly, how you, you know, <laughs> Teach I put, me. I spent yes. years, you know, learning about Sonora for marine biology, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then slowly started to understand, you know, that what he was actually seeing was primary productivity, the amount of algae in water based on the shining of the sun during the sunset, wow. which is what we look on satellites to know where to go, to go fishing. You see, and he honestly couldn't write his name, yet it's the person I know, I knew his pastor now, is the person I knew he knew the most about fishing that I ever met. Mm, that's such a pertinent reminder as well of just uh, what you know is never everything. No, and humility is fundamental, you know. Mm. Humility is fundamental, you know, and I think that comes from just interacting with people. Mm. You know, th that is perhaps, perhaps the thing is, if we go back to humility, um, you know, there is a, sort of a beautiful Maori saying, you know, what is the most important thing on the world? The people, the people, the people. You know, nothing of what we do will exist if it wasn't for people. Nothing of what we're going to check, we, we want to help. It's not, well, you know, oh, yes, it helps your career, you know, oh, another paper, oh, and, you know, postdoc. But if it doesn't help the people, what's the point? Mm, that is very powerful, Francisco. Thank you. I think now is probably a good time for us to transition to our rapid fire questions which you've mostly answered but nonetheless <laughs> let's give it a go uh so the first one for you is something interesting that you've learned in the past year oh uh it's been interesting because i will say that the past year has been two years um i always see myself as an operational person so when i couldn't travel anymore because COVID. I, I doubted what's going to happen with my work. So I had to move from, you know, operation and a bit of research to research and policy analysis, which is something I was scared because, you know, I'm not a good writer. Yet, surprisingly, by putting this on the table right from the beginning with many of my clients, they were okay with it. And I actually did very well on, you know, on policy analysis and ground truthing which is taking things down to the ground, which is what we discussed before. So what I learned, uh, again, is that don't be your worst enemy in terms of, you know, what you can do or not do. Here mm. we go. Oh, well, that's actually something that has come up time and time again in these conversations of yeah. just don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good is something Oof. that Lena Wen Beautiful. said. And I think that captures it so well. It's one of my favorite ones, you know. Another one that I always use is be able to separate what's nice from what's necessary. Mm, very powerful and very helpful for me as I um, as I chip away at my doctorate. <laughs> yes, so thank you. Next question for you: One person that you would love to have a meal with, alive or dead? Oh, ah, I'm actually as I discussed before. You know, this may sound. Uh, I love to have a, a chat with Marcus Aurelius. Because, you know, it's been a stoic and, you know, the guy was in charge of, you know, a big chunk of the world at some time, you know, and, and he's always coming back to, you know, to, you know, share his food with the slaves, you know, and to be, don't, don't think that he, you know, uh, that, you know, you, you, you're, you you know, that you are a big thing, you know, so I'm having a, a chat with him and perhaps with some cool DJ one night. You know, <laughs> I do the, the cooking. Same. 
same you know, dinner table. We would just sit up, you know, and have a good conversation, listen to some good music, you know. I would love that. Oh, that sounds you know. pretty, pretty good to me, I have to say, for a meal yeah, yeah, yeah. and conversation. Yeah, I'll let you know you come over. Please, I'll I let would, you know I you would come love over, to yeah. be there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, next question for you is your favorite song right now. And this is a special question for you, noting your love for DJing. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's a, a one favorite song would be a very hard, but as I say, for um, for a while now, I keep coming back to uh, Danny Reed's "Be Grateful," yes. whose uh, lyrics is "Be grateful, be grateful for who you are." Yeah, I actually haven't heard it, so I'll have to go have a listen. I link and... it to you. Yeah. Thank you. I look forward to it. Uh, we'll find one final question for you, Francisco, yeah. which I think you've <laughs> answered uh time and time again now over and over again with many different answers that would be just fantastic ones but i wondered if you have a favorite quote i would be the one from chomsky we have two choices to abandon hope and ensure the worst will happen or to make use the opportunities that exist and contribute to a better better world it's not a difficult Hmm. choice and pretty powerful one for i think even just the world that we're living in at the moment when it's so easy to look to all of the reasons to abandon hope but if you take a pretty sit back and actually take a big picture view of what what that hopelessness means and there's not much point to it is there there is a lot of hopelessness you know but and doom may sell but it doesn't help yet on the other side i have a 21 year old son and he's the first male with my family name in five generations that hasn't been to war. So that is something mm. to celebrate. Yes, you know, absolutely. There's a lot of bad shit, but then there are a couple of things that are going better. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And we need to celebrate those. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Francisco. This conversation has been life-giving for me, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it's oh, just been really nice. Thank you. It's been wonderful to hear all about your journey, all the the turns along the way but also I think just to talk more generally about life and what what it all means so thank you so much for the conversation thank you and the roads and the roads uh, structure there for the opportunity you know I don't take it for granted you know